This is Locked On Gamecocks. You've got Matt Smith here with you, and I am fresh off covering the Gamecocks women's basketball team. And Dawn Staley, Aaliyah Boston, they put a number on Georgia, winning 89-56. to We'll actually hear a little bit from Dawn Staley, just answer a couple of questions quickly in her press conference. I was there today and uh, in Greenville, South Carolina, and it was uh, so much fun, tremendous atmosphere. You have to give a lot of credit for the way Gamecock basketball fans have embraced Dawn Staley and this team. And look, it doesn't hurt that they're winners. It doesn't hurt that they play an exciting brand, and it doesn't hurt that they are deep. And we'll talk about that depth coming up in our final segment. Also, on today's edition of the podcast, I told you we'd talk about some of the Gamecocks that are moving on to the NFL. We've got Scott Wright, NFLDraftCountdown.com along to do that with us. Uh, Scott is brilliant. Uh, great website, great insight into why evaluators look at players the way they do, and he has a real knack because of his connections to the NFL for understanding what teams are looking for. And you'll hear him talk about that a little bit as well, about how, why he, he likes to be accurate and he tries to guess you know, what the Giants or the Raiders or the Chargers are going to do based on past picks and what he knows about who the, their evaluators are and then who their decision makers are. Now, all that plays into you know, what happens to a guy like Javon Kinlaw, defensive tackle from South Carolina. So we'll do that coming up in our second segment. Right now, I want to make sure we are up to date on Gamecock basketball. They are trying to claw their way into the NCAA tournament. Uh, Of course, this is a team I've watched uh, a lot in person recently and covered these games. Now South Carolina on the road, heading to Nashville to play against Vanderbilt. Well, get cozy because that's also where the SEC tournament is is scheduled to be. Now, here's the best news for South Carolina, and you know Frank Martin loves Justin Manaya and love the way loves the way he affects this team and what he can do for them defensively. Uh, so versatile as a player, and he was coming back from that injury, and he never found his shooting stroke this year before he got injured again, but. He can give this team a boost because he may be returning for the Vanderbilt game. And and if not, perhaps for the SEC tournament. Uh, he got his cast off this week. He's run through drills. So right now, you know, today is Friday. The plan is to have Manaya practice. And he would wear a splint on his thumb if he plays. So you know... You know, and that's his shooting hand. So you know Justin Manaya is going to try to fight through this. So, and that's going to affect his shooting. It just, it will. And he hasn't even had time to really practice with it. Uh, imagine doing anything. Imagine putting a splint on your thumb and then opening a jar of pickles. Trying to shoot pool. Try to go bowling with your friends. It's going to affect you. But, but, just having Justin Manaya's presence maybe he can give you some minutes play defensively and Vanderbilt only 10 and 20 so there is just so much positivity right now for South Carolina and of course coming off the senior night win um, now what happens with the rotation in South Carolina I playing Mississippi State it really lent itself to going really big and Alonzo Frank has played well 
lately. But can he keep that up? Can he be a consistent scorer when you need him to be? Where's Jermaine Kuznard been? I think some of the matchups haven't favored Kuznard, but some things I want to see coming down the stretch from Kuznard and this team, I, I want to see Jermaine Kuznard get nasty, man. Uh, I, I know he struggled with his shot recently, but he's got to be more aggressive, and he's got to slash and beat defenders off the dribble, penetrate, and give shots, uh, set up shots for some of his teammates because a guy like Alonzo Frank, I mean, you can't just rely on Frank either having a mismatch or grabbing offensive rebounds, and Mike Coates only had two rebounds. I mean, look, I was complimentary of him. I love what he can do, but... To be 6'11", senior night, go for 20 points and only grab two rebounds. He's got to get in there and really help this team and focus on the rebounding. That's another area where Justin Minaya would help this team. So I want to see that from, from Mike Kotsar. I want to see some nastiness from Jermaine Kuznar. I want to see some aggression from him and A.J. Lawson. Lawson's handle isn't great, and so that's kind of lulled him into shooting the three. And he shot a good percentage this season. I'm not going to argue that. But I want to see Lawson and Kuznard cutting, driving more. Because South Carolina right now, the, the opposition has shot 199 more foul shots than they have. And South Carolina has reputation. They're not going to stop fouling, and the refs aren't going to stop blowing the whistle. So South Carolina's got to even it up on the other end. And it's up to athletes like Bryant and Kuznard and A.J. Lawson. Now, off the bench, I, here's what I'd like to see from Frank Martin. How about giving Jair Bolden some more run? That guy's shooting 42% from the three-point line. When the game started to get away from South Carolina against Mississippi State, he jumped in and hit two threes, back-to-back threes. So I like what Bolden gives the Gamecocks as well. I know he's not as good defensively, and, and you lose something with Bolden on the floor, but you need that scoring punch that Bolden gives you off the bench. So, I, look, Martin doesn't have an easy job, I'll agree. Uh, because his five best offensive players aren't his five best defensive players. So he's got to juggle, and usually he chooses defense. But South Carolina needs a scoring punch down the stretch, on the road at Vanderbilt and then in the SEC tournament. Now, what does that mean, the SEC tournament? What, what, how, you know, how much meaning will be attached to it? Well, Joe Lenardi, who's pretty darn good as a bracketologist, has South Carolina still on the outside looking in. And beating Vanderbilt because they're 10-20 and 20 isn't going to do a lot to elevate their net ranking. So they may still, that would give them 19 wins. And I believe, I believe, and have always believed, they needed 20. So now they're going to play, they're going to finish in the, in the probably as the fifth seed, in, uh, and, and head to Nashville, and they're going to play somebody like Vanderbilt again like Georgia, like Missouri, like Ole Miss. South Carolina's going to be favored. They're going to be favored on the road at Vanderbilt. They're going to be favored in the SEC tournament against their first opponent. They need them both. So that's where they are. So Martin has to still push the right buttons. And, hey, A.J. Lawson, man, calling you out. You are supposed to be the best player on this Gamecocks basketball team. Well, you've got to play your best games coming down the stretch to get them to the NCAA tournament, which is what leaders and what good good basketball players on tournament teams, it's what they do. And that's, that doesn't just go for South Carolina basketball history. That is mid-major teams, elite teams, the Blue Bloods, everybody. Your best players, this is winning time. When everybody else is tired, you're supposed to have an advantage over your matchup. You have a matchup advantage. Lawson, 
You need to be better than whomever is guarding you from Vanderbilt tomorrow night in Nashville and take the game from them. So let's see if South Carolina can do it. In baseball, we went over that in depth yesterday. And, you know, that that's a club uh, in Cornell. South Carolina needs to take absolutely at least two of three from. Uh, the way I put it, man, get a good night's sleep, eat a good breakfast, sweep Cornell. I'm not budging off that. That's what I think of Cornell's program right now, not a high-quality team. So South Carolina needs to sweep Big Red. Uh, one football note I want to mention, I watched. I actually watched the Marshawn Lloyd film and then some clips of him practicing. Look, nobody. we're not going to freak out over you know what's happening out there, running against dummies and people pushing sleds and uh, you know, you're running with parachutes behind you. We're not going to freak out about that. I will tell you, Lloyd looks good. Lloyd looks quick. And Mike Bobo, Zach Pickens, every defender we've talked to, Deshaun Fenwick, uh, his fellow running back, everybody is backing that up. Lloyd's quickness means he needs to get on the field this uh, season, this fall for South Carolina, and he's got to be an impact player. Uh, yes, we expect him to be quick. We expect him to be dynamic. You expect big plays, all of those things. Then he has to have the toughness to make it through an SEC season as a freshman. That is not easily done. And go back and look at the record books. That doesn't happen that often either. Look at the history of South Carolina running backs. Marcus Lattimore is the only one that's gotten 1,000 yards in that freshman season. Uh, Thomas Dendy had a great freshman year. George Rogers, but he, he was a fullback. That was different. Uh, Deuce Staley came in and had a nice freshman year. Derek Watson had a good freshman year on a team that really struggled. Of course, it was 0-11, but, but you could see flashes. They didn't want to wear him out that year. Can Marshawn Lloyd carry the mail this season for South Carolina? That will be something we'll keep an eye on. So when we come back, we are talking with Scott Wright, NFLDraftCountdown.com. Let's talk about Javon Kinlaw, Brian Edwards, and even one-year Gamecock, Tavian Feaster, about their NFL chances. We'll do that when we come back. This is Black Garnet and Daily, your team every day. Locked on Gamecocks, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Scott Wright, NFL Draft Countdown.com with us. And uh, Scott, for South Carolina, a guy who made himself a lot of money this past season um, for a lot of different reasons, but he's kind of now, if anybody ever wants to hear about going back from your junior year to your senior year, Javon Kinlaw might have something to say to him because he was not high on those draft boards, and then he transformed his body, and then the film popped. So now he's no doubt a first-rounder. What do you hear? What do you see with Javon Kinlaw? Yeah, you're absolutely right about a guy who really improved his stock by going back for his senior year. The light seemed to come on, and I think he's in the best shape of his life. And uh, he's going to go. He went last year. Had he come out, probably a day two pick. This year, he's going in the top ten to twenty overall. And I got a chance to see him up close and personal down in Mobile at the Senior Bowl. And going into that week, it was basically Justin Herbert from Oregon and Javon Kinlaw were the were the cream of the crop. And boy, Kinlaw did not waste any time proving that, that he indeed was the 
uh, on a different level than most of the guys down there. Unfortunately, he got dinged up and, and, and wasn't able to participate uh, the back half of the weekend in the game, but he had already done more than enough and shown more than enough to solidify his grade in the top half of the first round. And just a big jumbo athlete uh, on the defensive line. Uh, you can play him inside in a 4-3. You could play defensive end in a 3-4. Uh, and Just explosive, uh, can can get upfield and make plays in the backfield. And, and his best football might still be ahead of him. Uh, his trajectory is pointing upwards. So, uh, Kim La, I think he's clearly the number two defensive tackle in this draft behind Derek Brown from Auburn. And, and if Brown comes off the board as high as maybe three to the Lions, four to the Giants, maybe that pushes Kinlaw up into that back end of the top ten. Worst case, I think he goes somewhere in the middle of the first round. I think his floor might be a team like the Jaguars at 20, but there's a bunch of potential landing spots for him. And uh, uh, as I said, he's the clear-cut number two defensive tackle in this class. You know, there's some guys that I've seen over the years. I'm not always a body guy in terms of, of how you view uh, and project players, but Kinlaw looks to be, and since you saw him up close and personal, see if you agree with me, like one of those guys that can really carry the weight. That frame is there, so there's no concern. He doesn't have to put on bad weight to play defensive tackle. Yeah, absolutely. He was 6'5", 324 pounds, carries it really well. But the thing that struck me, too, seeing him at the weigh-in of the Senior Bowl, super long arms. I mean, almost 35-inch arms uh, and, and big hands. I mean, he absolutely looks the part. He checks all of the boxes physically. Here's a question about your website, NFLDraftCountdown.com, and I've asked you this before, but as you evaluate, you're evaluating talent, then you're trying to evaluate need, fit, and in your mock draft, you're trying to guess what some of the general managers who might overrule their scouts are also thinking. And, and I guess I'm just wondering, when you do that mock draft, how much do you weigh, like, okay, the Browns always screw this up, or the Dolphins or the Redskins always screw this up. So I think they should take this player. The scouts would say they should take this player, but I kind of feel like this organization always goes this route. Yeah, well, and there's two approaches you can take with mock drafts. You can do it either from the perspective of what you think the teams will do or what you would do. And, and I've always taken the approach of I try to do what I think the teams will do because uh, I'm trying to be as accurate as possible. and. And, and there's definitely areas where, man, if, if I were the team, I wouldn't do that, but that, that's probably what's going to happen based on what I'm hearing and, and based on the landscape. I think that's what they're going to do. But, but that's one of the fun things about mock drafts is, is all those factors that go into it, kind of like this big puzzle that you're trying to put together and, and make the pieces fit. Uh, so, so I think that's one of the attractions of mock drafts. But, but, no, I definitely always try to go with what I think the teams will do and and along with that, you take into account the types of players that the teams tend to favor. I talked about the Giants earlier about how I, you can make a strong case for Isaiah Simmons at number four, but just historically, knowing Dave Gettleman, their general manager, knowing what that organization prioritizes, I think it's going to be an offensive lineman like uh, Makai Becton from Louisville or, or Tristan Wirsch from Iowa. Do you have another example of that uh, maybe in the first round somewhere or, or, or somebody you're looking at and you just know what the scout's thinking. You know what you, you think as an evaluator and you just you can't believe that so-and-so is not being talked about more highly or you think there's a reach in the first round, somebody that's being talked about that you know is a reach. Well, and some are easier than others. Uh, and going back to the Giants again, last year I identified Daniel Jones as the Giants type of quarterback many, many months prior to the draft. I mean, it just fit. And the reason it's easy with the Giants is because their organization and their mindset hasn't really changed much in the last 20, 30 years as a whole. And then on the other side of the coin, you have new decision makers. So I'm really intrigued to see what Matt Rule is going to do with the Carolina Panthers because we don't really have a track record there. We don't know what he's going to prioritize. 
Uh, last year, we had that with the Raiders and Mike Mayock and John Gruden. I was very interested to see what kind of approach they were going to take. And now I think we have a little bit of a, uh, uh, an MO for Mike Mayock and the Raiders. Uh, he's going to value guys that, that, were, uh, that, that have high intangibles, uh, maybe even over physical tools. He wants guys that are going to be uh, contributing not only on the field, but also kind of set the tone uh, for off the field and in the locker room. So uh, I, I think the Raiders now, we have a little bit more insight on, on how they're going to approach this draft. And, and that's why I think, you know, they're looking for a linebacker. Certainly they're looking for a wide receiver with one of their two first round picks, but they're also looking for a linebacker. And I mentioned Isaiah Simmons, maybe trading up for him, but if not, I think they could be looking at Kenneth Murray from Oklahoma or Patrick Queen from LSU at number 19 overall. And it's kind of a one, a one B type of situation, but I'm airing a little towards Murray just because his intangibles are just out of this world. And he interviewing extremely well. And, and, and that's what the Raiders are looking for. So, so I think the Raiders are another example uh, where, where we kind of know they have a type, if you will. Looks like somebody you build on a video game, doesn't it? To play exactly. <laughs> One of those first off the bus guys. <laughs> yep. Uh, Scott Wright, NFLDraftCountdown.com. Well, how about Brian Edwards, wide receiver who's, you know, got the injury, so he's not doing anything at the combine, but he's a smart player, a really good teammate, big-time production. Maybe the athleticism doesn't pop. So that, that means that he's going to have to go somewhere specific for a specific role. How do you view him as a prospect in the NFL? Yeah, like you say, he's a big receiver. He's just a shade under 6'3", over 200 pounds, uh, really productive. Uh, and unfortunately, the pre-draft process hasn't been particularly kind for him. Uh, he was hurt and wasn't able to part, take part in the senior bowl week. Uh, and then uh, he, he got hurt during pre-draft training, and that kind of uh, knocked him out of the scouting combine drills and stuff. So uh, it, it's tough, too. This year, there's just so much competition at wide receiver. It's a historically great crop of pass catchers, and, and you're gonna, guys that would normally go in the second or third round are going to go in the fourth or fifth round. And I kind of worry that that might be Brian Edwards. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if he slid a little bit just because uh, some other guys might have leapfrogged him a little bit during this pre-draft process. But, but if he is still available in that fourth round, I mean, he's going to be a steal for someone. And there's still a good chance he could go on day two. So uh, definitely still one of the top senior wideouts in this class. It's just, uh, just not a lot of positive momentum right now because he hasn't been able to show his wares the last couple of months. And, uh, and there's just so many other guys to, to catch your attention. Well, we'll have to start a separate website for you, Scott, to pair with NFLDraftCountdown.com, like second contract guys that you think they might make more money as a pro than they are in the draft process. Absolutely. And, you know, so much focus is on those first round picks, but man, there, there's going to be a, there's always a lot of talent available beyond the first round, but especially this year, this is a really deep class. And uh, Brian Edwards is a classic case of a guy that you might be able to get at a value point in, in the draft. And, and that's why I think some of these teams early in the draft that need wide receivers, they might just pass because they think, well, as much as we need a receiver, we're going to be able to get one two, three rounds later, a similar type of player at better value. And, and the other aspect, too, is I think we might see a lot of teams that don't necessarily have a need at wide receiver take them relatively early anyways, just because the value is going to be too great to pass up. You might get to the third, fourth round, and a team that doesn't need a receiver is just saying, well, man, we got a top 50 grade on this guy. we got to pull the trigger, even though we don't have a spot for him. So I think that's going to be one of the interesting storylines with this draft is how teams approach that wide receiver position, because it's such a unique situation with the depth. Well, I know you go really deep, and I was digging in deep into all of your rankings, which is one of the reasons I recommend NFLDraftCountdown.com. 
Tavian Feaster, who transferred out of Clemson into South Carolina, came in as a five-star recruit, and he's one of those guys who seems like the prototypical NFL running back because he has great hands, he can run routes, he's big enough, and he has top-end speed. But the production wasn't really there collegiately. So how do you think the evaluators and the scouts look at a player like Tavian Feaster, who kind of in workouts looks like he should be an NFL running back, but when you watch the film, it doesn't translate? Yeah, I was surprised he wasn't at the scouting combine. He was actually one of the, I think, 10 players I featured in my scouting combine, scouting combine snubs article. Uh, a guy who, like you said, didn't, didn't necessarily translate those physical tools to the field consistently in terms of production. But, I mean, he absolutely looks the part. He's going to run really well at his pro day. And, and he had a great week at the East-West Shrine game. Uh, he was definitely a standout there. So I was surprised he wasn't invited. I, I think it just comes down to a number game. Uh, there's so many running backs. I think we had 20 underclassmen running backs come out just by themselves. And there's 20 running backs on average drafted every year. So there's a lot of competition at that position, and there are a number of good runners who, who, who didn't get an invite to, to Indy. So I think he's kind of in that, that late-round mix, but, I mean, it's one of those situations where he could end up being a better pro than college player, especially if he lands in the right situation and gets an opportunity. Uh, and that's so much what happens with the running backs, whether you're drafted in the second round or the seventh round or you're undrafted free agent. Uh, it, it comes down to opportunity. And, if he, if, for example, if he ends up with a team like the Kansas City Chiefs, who knows what could happen in that offense uh, and he's allowed to compete uh, or he could go to a team in the fifth round where he gets buried as a third running back. And you don't hear from him, but um, I think he's going to be more of a late day three pick, but I certainly think he's a, an intriguing runner in the, the back end of the draft. And that's the thing too, when you, when you get towards the back end of the draft with running backs, you're usually looking at, well, he's probably either a career backup or maybe he's a situational change of pace type runner. He doesn't have the size to be an every down back. I think he offers something different in the in the aspect of, you know, he's got frontline physical tools and there's some untapped potential there. So I, I think he's gonna be intriguing. You get in that sixth, seventh round, and there's very little difference between being a sixth or seventh round pick and a priority free agent. Uh, a lot of times it just comes down to the draft order and uh, whether uh, well, what the teams are looking for. So uh, he's got a chance to be drafted, but uh, I, I think he's gonna be an intriguing guy late rounds priority free agency. This is Locked On Gamecocks. Always fun to talk draft with Scott Wright, NFLDraftCountdown.com. We'll actually check in with him again when we get a little bit closer. Now I have a lot more commentary on the draft and the Gamecocks uh, that could be playing at the next level come next season when we uh, get back with you next week here on Locked On Gamecocks. But right now, I want to make sure everybody can celebrate Dawn Staley and Leah Boston uh, all of these great players for South Carolina and all that they are accomplishing right now. Number one overall seed, uh, you know, right now, and of course the top seed in the SEC tournament. They handled Georgia 89-56 earlier today. That was a game that I was covering. Boston, by the way, just, you know, one of my favorite players to watch. And she picked up four blocks and ten rebounds uh, in only about 18 minutes of play. So she was a force and always is out there. And South Carolina was dialed in defensively. But as important as anything else to South Carolina's success today was the play of the bench. And we knew South Carolina was probably the deepest team in the country, and that's been a key to their success all season. As a matter of fact, uh, Joni Taylor, uh, or Joni Staley, uh, the coach for 
uh, Georgia said that you know most of these players could start elsewhere, and they absolutely could. I mean, there are all American players that have to sit on the bench for South Carolina, and so we'll we'll let you go today with a little bit from Dawn Staley, whose team will be playing Arkansas in the semifinals this weekend. On that bench play, if she's considering moving second unit players into more prominent roles, and how she, a national championship coach, balances the egos of her reserves, many of whom could start at almost any other program in the country. I mean, I, I thought we were, I thought we were a little rattled early on, and maybe it was just, you know, the rust of not playing on a on a Thursday. Um, you know, but I think our, our, our bench has shown up um, all season long to give us a boost, and um, they needed, I mean, they they gave us the boost that we needed um, early in this basketball game, and I was, you know, happy to see them impacted in this way. They know when they're coming in the game, you know, somewhere after the, you know, the five-minute timeout, count for extended minutes because of foul trouble. Um, you know, but that, that second unit used to play with each other. You know, they, they've done it all year long um, in practices, and I actually like to see them together uh, where, you know, they're, they're playing as a unit because, it, you know, they're so familiar with themselves. They, they understand their importance. And when you understand that you're important to our basketball team, um, you, you feel a sense of want and need. Um, and I think Ty and Kiki, they, they do a great job at just, um, and I think this is an example of when you accept your role, no matter what role it is. Um, unfortunately, if we could say that, you know, uh, the bench could start somewhere else. But, you know, we have to make a decision. We made that decision. And and now we're at a place where, you know, they come in, they get 40, I mean, 40 points. I mean, they got assists, they got rebounds, they got block shots, they're making an impact. So hopefully, you know, other programs are watching um, and other players are watching just how impactful every single player that's on our roster is for our basketball team. And that's all because they've, you know, they've embraced their roles. They got their feet wet. Um, some of them played extended minutes, some of them didn't play a whole lot of minutes, but I think it feels good when you can when you can get in a game and run up and down and shoot the ball or even even turn the ball over. You just feel like you uh, you've played and I'm, I'm happy that we were able to play 11 players today.